Welcome, everyone, to the Agency Rainmaker TV show, the TV show where we help agency owners make it rain. And sometimes it's about bringing in the money, and sometimes it's about keeping the money that you get. Uh, there's an adage here, what you don't spend, you get to keep. So with us today is somebody who is going to help us keep the money. And welcome, Attorney at Law, Sharon Torque. Sharon, it's great to have you here today. Henry, thanks so much for having me. So the first question is, who is your who? Who do you serve in your legal practice? We serve independent marketing agencies, small to mid-inside nationwide in the United States. And we help them in um, one of three ways, either uh, with their protection of intellectual property, which agencies create every day. It's one of their most significant assets. Um, secondly, um, we help them enter into strong, solid contracts, whether that's with a client or a freelancer or an employee. And then third, we help them um, remain compliant with marketing regulations so that when they're putting a campaign out into the world, um, it's following all the rules uh, regarding um, the marketing tactic that they're using. Once my agency owner said, you've got to be careful what you're doing there. Otherwise, we could get our, our wrists slapped. And I said, what does a wrist slap mean? She says, in the state of California, it's a $20,000 slap on the wrist. So yeah. we need to be careful with that. So sure. do you find similar things across the country in your world? I find that most agency, yes, is the short answer. The longer answer is I find most agency owners are um, less likely to have a wrist slap if they're being proactive, first of all. And second of all, I find that um, the other thing they're doing that's costing them money is leaving too much on the table when they um, create or when they enter into contracts, uh, especially with their clients. So I think that's a bigger jeopardy for most agencies. Tell me more about that because there are stages to enrolling a client. There's that attraction phase and then you're going to have that uh, first discovery call. Then you're going to have a meaningful conversation where you get down to deal points. And then finally, there's that agreement phase. And I know a lot of people, a lot of agency owners have messed up in that phase when it comes to getting it down in writing. Uh, tell us your experience with helping people with that. Sure. You know, well, agency owners are always eager when they think they've found they have found one of those right fit prospects to keep the ball rolling as quickly as possible and to mature that relationship from prospect to client. And, and you know, they want to get that retainer money rolling. They want to get that project started so they can get the bill out as soon as possible. These are all really understandable impulses. But um, it helps it make it a little too easy to skip some steps along the way. And I, I'll just point out, I think, two of them um, that every agency I know struggles with at some point or another. The first is that business development conversation phase when you're sort of courting and then dating with a prospect before you actually sign on the line that is dotted um, that master service agreement or that client services agreement. And your main jeopardy there is that most agencies are uh, in the position of wanting to show their, their best side, right? You want to show your chops. You want to show examples of um, your best strategy ideas, your best concepts. 
perhaps uh, concepts that you've used in the past or whatever it is, you want to show um, your chops by and requiring that requires that you sort of display a lot of your intellectual property in the process. There's that's not necessarily bad per se, but what is challenging is displaying it to the client without obligating them to um, acknowledge that it's your intellectual property as an agency and without them agreeing to not use it without paying you for it. And so this is where a lot of agencies get jammed up in the business development phase is they want to express their ideation, show their ideas, but they don't want the prospect to use the stuff without the agency being somehow acknowledged or, or compensated for that. So that's challenge number one. And then challenge number two is making certain that you enter into an agreement that's not overwhelming for the parties, but that is protective of the agency and a couple of crucial areas, um, IP transfer, obviously payment terms, liability, um, and a host of other things that are important. Um, and then there's side issues that come up during the negotiations. Um, inevitably, for example, we're seeing a an increase in requests for exclusivity on the part of clients to agencies during these conversations. Um, and, um, and, you know, some other issues that arise from time to time, but that's sort of the jeopardy that most agencies um, can step into when they're all excited about getting the new business signed up. I definitely had that experience about the exclusivity. I was offered a contract. It became a retainer for several years with a large law firm. But initially when they pushed an agreement toward me, it said we would be their exclusive law firm. Mm -hmm. And I said, whoa, you know, there are all different kinds of law, your employment law. Uh, mm -hmm. But if somebody, you know, comes to us in their intellectual property law or their contract law or one lawyer, Sharon, I asked him what kind of law he practiced. And he said, rent law, any law that pays the rent. That's the law that I practice. Oh, no. uh, but as you know, there's there are many areas. So. Sometimes you have to give pushback, right? In those mm -hmm. negotiations. What are your Always. suggestions on that? Always, yes. You know, when you're asked as an agency to consider exclusivity, you know, first, let me take a step back and say, it's your business decision as an agency owner to make. Um, there may be circumstances in which it's a really great business decision to agree to be exclusive to a particular client, Um Perhaps they will be a big feather in your cap as an agency. Um, perhaps the size of the project or the account is really large and it will be financially meaningful to you and your business. But I, my position on this is your default, it should be no exclusivity as an agency. You should walk into the conversation with that expectation. If you're going to agree to exclusivity, you want to do two things. You want to extract as big a premium as you can from the client, whether that means the minimum annual spend of, under the agreement from the client, whether that means a term um, or other important provisions that suit your needs, or whether that means um, you know some other things that might be beneficial to you from the relationship. That's the first thing you need to extract: premium pricing, you know, rate premiums, things like that. Yeah. The second is you want to limit the um, application of that. Uh, covenant 
as narrowly as possible. You want to make sure, first of all, it doesn't last beyond the term of the agreement. You want to make sure you limit it to as few categories or companies as possible. Um, there are other things to do to limit, but the, the bottom line is you want to extract a premium and you want to narrow the exclusivity covenant as much as you can if you're going to agree to it at all, um, you know, to start with. With that law firm example of mine, what I did was I settled on they could name two law firms that I would not work with mm -hmm. as long as we were working together. So is, instead of every yeah, law that's... firm in the country, and they had two that they, you know, that was brand X for them, you know, they, you know, mm -hmm. the evil, the evil empire. Um, I worked with, uh, um, well, I'll tell you, Petco once I can say it, but, uh, you know, I had to agree that I would not work for a, an intelligent pet company that was also a specialty retailer, uh, not to be named here. So sometimes it's just one or two you can name. Sure. Um, but as as we know, um, our friends at uh, AMI, Agency Management Institute and Predictive ROI, really um, encourage agency owners to go super niche. So if you're going to go super niche, and I did that once with an agency where we were exclusive with home builders. Mm -hmm. Well, we couldn't offer exclusivity to one home builder because we'd be out of business. Uh, we had to... It make a case that we're not going to share and cross-pollinate uh, ideas and concepts. However, you're going to benefit because of our relationships and our relationships with, uh, with media, our relationships with journalists, uh, relationships with getting speaking engagements they wanted, things of this nature. So you have to sell the benefit that you're a specialist in the niche. Um, or niche in Canada, niche in the United States. I, I'm not <laughs> sure we know how to pronounce this word. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of niching. Uh, we've obviously made a decision to do it with my firm. We serve a very specific community of clients. But I will admit, you know, it does come with a double-edged sword sometimes to some agencies because the more um, successful you get in your niche or your niche, the more sought after you are by other companies in that category or that industry. And so, um, and it does increase the risk that you're going to be asked at some point to, um, you know, to bind yourself in ways that might limit your other opportunities. And so, again, you have to do that analysis and determine whether the business opportunity is meaningful enough for you to forego some of those other options. And so, I always, you know, I always get back to it's it is a business decision to make for the owner of the agency. Um, but, you know, have that default position of it's not what we do and then figure out um, if you're going to accept it, how you can limit its application just as much as possible. And your example of limiting it to a specific list of potential competitors is exactly one of the tools that we suggest to agencies on, on many occasions, um, you know give us a list client of the competitors who you feel would be damaging for you, um, damaging to you if we were to also provide them services and, you know, we'll consider them. Um, or in some cases like huge CPG accounts where you've got like a Procter & Gamble or Unilever and they have dozens and dozens and dozens of brands, then you've got to really be specific, right? About whose business you will 
um, have to refuse if you uh, work for a competitor. Right. If you're working on the Tide account, uh, you know, can you work on all or I don't know, some of these Procter & Gamble loans, the competitive products and the they sure do. And, you know, they, they absolutely do. And so, yeah, is it detergent or is it toothpaste? Which which do you need us to stay away from? And so it can definitely be interesting. Yeah. You you mentioned something else I found very interesting and I wanted to pursue it. Um, so Indie Books International is a marketing agency for marketing agencies. It's not a coincidence we're talking because yeah. we serve the same market, small to mid-sized agencies. Mm -hmm. And one of our services is ghostwriting. And something we learned the importance of is the document that transfers the copyright and the ownership of the book. Because once we were writing a book, we had finished writing the manuscript, the client owed us one more payment and said, you know, we've decided not to pursue this. And mm -hmm. we learned that we had to go, oh, well, then we need to inform you that you do not own the mm -hmm. content of that book yet because you haven't made the final payment and we haven't given you the transfer of copyright. So mm -hmm. could you talk about some other examples where that comes up for agencies? For sure, this is one of my this is one of my favorite topics to talk to agencies about. I am an IP lawyer by training. I have a passion for protection of intellectual property. It drives our economy. It certainly drives the financial fortunes of every agency, no matter what their size. And so, you want to make sure that just as we spoke a few minutes ago about the challenges of retaining your IP in a new business situation and making sure that. It isn't disclosed in an environment that could put you in jeopardy of it being taken without you being compensated. Once you're in the relationship with the client, you need to make certain that any transfer of rights to the work that you create for them overall doesn't occur until you're paid. So it's exactly the scenario you just you know prescribed where, oh, we don't want to make the last payment because we're not going to move forward with the project. Okay, well, but our contract is written um, to provide that you don't own any of the IP until you pay us for the entire job. Uh, and that's only fair because otherwise you run into problems of, well, how do you measure what we've already bought versus what we haven't bought? And um, it also, it's, you know, a lot of folks in the industry are sort of perplexed by the notion, and it doesn't make common sense in business if you think about it that you could pay for something and not own the rights to it, or you could partially pay for it and not own any rights to it. But the way the copyright law is written, if you haven't actually created the work, if third party, like an agency has done it for you, then the transfer of the rights is governed by a writing between the parties. So you have to include language in your master service agreement or your client services agreement that speaks to timing of transfer. And not only that, but you want to make sure you have reserved in your agreement with the client the things that are never going to transfer to them, regardless of payment status. Um, for example, you may have proprietary content or proprietary software that you've created or some other proprietary systems, processes, whatever, that get included in the final deliverable. But those proprietary things remain the property of the agency. So you want to carve out in your agreement any of your pre-existing work as an agency that you're going to be using over and over and over again for multiple client engagements. That's That belongs to the agency. The agency retains that. Um, additionally, another thing that people in the agency world don't often think of as an IP right 
They think of it more as a publicity right. And I suppose it's a bit of both, but you want to carve out the right to be able to display samples of the work that you've done um, for publicity and promotional and business development purposes. So samples of work, logos and names of clients you've worked for, um, case studies that you want to build anonymously based on work and results that you've achieved for a particular client. Those are all IP rights as well, and it's important to address those. Um, and that's just the client side of things. I'm also pretty passionate about reminding agency owners that if you use freelancers or contractors or strategic vendors, and every single agency I've ever represented does, no matter what their size, you need to remember that whether you're calling them a freelancer or a contract employee, which is actually not a thing, but whatever you're calling them, if they're not getting a W-2 at the end of the year from your agency, they're a contractor. And if they're a contractor, you need something in writing that transfers the rights to all the work that they do to you um, for two reasons. First of all, you want to own it as an agency. Second of all, you've probably promised your client in the master service agreement that they're going to own the rights at the end of the day once they pay you. And you can't transfer what you don't own. So um, remember that it's a two-way street, IP out between the agency and the client and IP in from third parties to the agency. Let me tell a horror story. Oh, I love horror Everybody stories. loves a good horror story. Absolutely. And uh, with all our independent contractors, we do an independent contractor agreement and work for higher language in it. <laughs> um, this was a client who came to me and um, I won't give their exact name, but they were um, uh, basically an association of law firms across the country um, that handled trusts and wills. Mm -hmm. So you, you joined their network, you paid money, you got access to documents and marketing mm -hmm. materials. Uh -huh. um, so they, they came to me and uh, um, said, you know, uh, well, who would you recommend as the leading authority uh, in this area? And I said, well, it'd be uh, Professor David Maestro, the Harvard Business School, wrote the, you know, these books. And he goes, yes, Maestro's very good. We hired him last year. And I said, well, what about uh, for this marketing angle? I said, well, Jay Abraham would be good. And all this, Jay Abraham's very good. We hired him. And they had one more. And I said, if you know all these people, why are you talking to me? They said, we had to find the person who knew all of these people's work because we have a problem. <laughs> we hired someone to write all our marketing materials and we did not get an agreement or a transfer uh, of the intellectual property to us. We had a disagreement with her and she walked out, took everything and formed a competitor. And now we do not have any marketing materials that we can share with our network of a hundred uh, law firms. Oh boy. And so I rewrote, that was my job. I wrote everything, rewrote it. So there'd be no um, problem with them using it. And they certainly made me sign the proper agreements on this. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, the CEO said, you know, I'm afraid I made a big mistake with you, even though we've got this intellectual property. Um, we may have created our competitor in you. And I said, um, can I be candid with you? And he said, 
you don't want to spend all your life working with just attorneys. And I said, your words, not mine. Yeah. Uh, but basically, sure. I love yeah. agency owners. That's who as I really a lawyer, love. As a lawyer myself, who can blame you? I totally understand that. Yeah. And yeah, look, I mean, except for your talent, your IP is your most significant asset as an agency. And agencies create it fresh every day. And it is just a... It's a warehouse of money. It's a warehouse of money and it can be monetized and sliced and diced in so many different ways. So to the extent, for example, that you haven't custom created it for any one client, it could easily be monetizable as a new revenue stream for you. It might be something to repurpose for another client. So you need to be purposeful as an agency, in my view. Um, and I, again, I am passionate about this. So you need to be purposeful about protecting that because it, it, I saw firsthand examples during the pandemic, for example, that agencies who were working with clients in distressed industries, food and beverage, tour, travel and tourism, they had to think of new ways to make money. And some of the ways they did it was to use the IP that they had and create, um, you know, uh, lower priced uh, packages or create online courses, um, create online conferences, just all, take all these um, assets that they have and figure out a new way to package and put them together to um, make money sometimes while they were sleeping. And yeah. not a lot of agencies were interested in doing that prior to the pandemic because they're all caught up in their fee-for-service work. And they're kind of getting that way again, but I think that... Um, I think that agencies who really think about this expansively understand the power of it. So I'm, again, pretty admittedly passionate about it. We have a common friend, uh, Susan Beyer, who's with the Audience yeah. Audit and does research studies. And um, there are certain research studies you can do for a client. And if you do the deal right, you can sell that report across the industry to other people Mm -hmm. um, who are not direct competitors with your client, but would benefit from this. I saw this once yeah. where the agency's client was a skateboard company. So they did a lot of research into the adolescent buyer market mm -hmm. uh, and non-competing with uh, skateboarding, but the clothing and other aspects, that report became very valuable. If they consulted on it, they charged $25,000 to consult with a business on the findings of their research study. Uh, they did it once and they sold it over and over again. We have a client who is um, very, very proficient in, um, in natural medicine and they create their own original research and monetize the research reports in addition to providing fee-for-service work for their client companies. So yeah, it's that is just a perfect uh, a perfect storm of industry knowledge, original uh, originally sourced data, um, and a way to apply it to a particular client community that um, can earn you money while you're sleeping. So it's it's a, it pays to be serious about it. Nice. Now the next item is the intersection of you know my marketing and uh, law. Okay. legal advice. Right. So um, you'll be very proud of me. I always say this to clients. The following is not legal advice. Please uh -huh. see competent legal counsel before making any decisions. These are for right. marketing educational purposes only. Void were prohibited by law. God bless the United States of America. Okay. 
So I, I give a disclaimer, uh, but it's about their proprietary process, their problem-solving process. When we write a book, I say most of the books should be about how you solve client problems and your process because prospects find process comforting. You should name it. You should put a TM after it. And you should look into hiring an attorney to file it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO.gov. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, you know, there's a cost and a fee. There have been stories where agencies have created these processes and didn't do any protections and they're taught at all the universities in the land now, and many agencies use this and claim it to be theirs. And they've really lost the value of some valuable intellectual property that they didn't think it was that valuable when they created it. So um, what's your advice on getting, you know, the going from the TM to the circle R uh, on yeah. certain things like that? So, you know, we just real quickly, we use a triangle approach to look at IP assets and IP portfolios and agencies are no different. So we look at content, which in your case might be the original process that you described. We look at transactions, which are what is your contract with your clients or what your contracts with your independent contractors look like as to the IP rights. And then we look at brand. And that's an example you just referenced where You've got a proprietary set of name or names uh, that identify some of the services or products that you provide as an agency. So you, the more of those things you have, the more well-rounded your IP portfolio is, the more valuable it becomes. And the assets start pointing one to another and each increases the, the value of the other. So in the example of branding of a proprietary system or process, um, the Pen and Trademark Office will not per se register um, a name or a group of words if it only identifies a system or process. You've got to show that you're actually using that name or phrase to, ident to identify something that's sold in commerce. So you need a, a service to accompany the process name. And if you put your thinking cap on, it's not hard to come up with a, you know, a credible story about how you actually are identifying something that you sell. So assuming you 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 jump over that hurdle, absolutely 100% endorse applying for any trademark to which you have the rights um, on a federal basis. And to the even to the extent you might not be eligible for a registration, um, one inexpensive slash free way to identify to the world that you consider this phrase or name proprietary is to use the TM legend. And it doesn't have any legal significance other than to sort of put the public on notice that you use this brand consistently to identify this product or this these services that you provide. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, started out as a trademark lawyer. And I think that agencies have usually pretty good portfolios of branding that um, could easily withstand the uh, Patent and Trademark Office's examination to become registered trademarks. One more horror story in that, um, because we publish books and you can't uh, copyright or trademark the title of a book. Correct. You can a series. Correct. So uh, The Dummy's Guide or Chicken Soup for the Soul, The One Minute Manager, these are trademark series. Now, um, 
I bring this up because you might want to name your book something, and there's a simple uh, database, the TESS, T-E-S-S -S, database at USPTO.gov, and you can look to make sure what you're going to call the book isn't somebody else's trademark. Mm -hmm. um, one of our clients said, well, this really won't matter. I'll just go ahead and um, use it. They're not going to mind. And they printed 10,000 copies of the book to get a quantity discount. Mm -hmm. And that's when we received the cease and desist order and the threat of lawsuit. And they asked me, what do we do now? And I said, Fahrenheit 451, which is the <laughs> Ray Bradbury novel about the temperature books burn at. They had to destroy 10,000 books yeah. um, or face this. So little mistakes, you know, not consulting with an attorney on things, I believe is a very, what do you would call it, uh, penny wise and pound foolish in that uh, these could be a huge cost. We had another uh, client, won't name, um, they mentioned a very famous basketball player um, in their book. Well, that's First Amendment. You can talk about people. They weren't libeling them. They were just saying how great this person was. Then they uh, did a video and a brochure, and they quoted their own book and used a photograph of this famous basketball player. Uh, my understanding was it was a six-figure settlement over that, something called the right of publicity. Um, you're not covered by the First Amendment when you're doing videos and promotional and putting things on your website. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of mistakes that can be made. Um, seek competent legal guidance. Let's just end it with that. Sharon, thank you so much for being our guest on Agency Rainmaker. Um, you know, we're teaching them how to make it rain. And, and actually, some of these ideas you have are very useful for increasing revenues to an agency. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Absolutely, my pleasure, Henry. Bye everybody, we'll see you on another episode of Agency Rainmaker TV.